I'd like to start by taking you back to October 30th, 1974. We're going to travel to the continent of Africa, to the nation of Zaire, the capital city of Kinshasa, where over 60,000 spectators had gathered for one of the most epic boxing matches of all time, the heavyweight championship of the world between George Foreman and Muhammad Ali. It would come to be known as the Rumble in the Jungle. The event promoters knew that it would be an epic fight, but the attendees needed to be prepared for just how intense this would be, for what a throwdown this would be. And so the, the rumble in the jungle language was employed to sort of prepare them for how big of a deal this would be. In fact, it was so significant, so helpful that, that language of a rumble has sort of caught on, such that in many events, uh, you'll hear the announcer start out by saying, let's get ready to rumble, even made it into Space Jam, and uh, popularized in that way. It's merely a way of preparing the audience for a big-time fight that's about to happen. And in a sense, that's what Paul's doing here in Galatians 5. He's saying, let's get ready to rumble. There's a big-time fight that's about to happen, and it's going to happen whether or not you're aware of it, but if you're aware of it and ready for it, you'll be able to proceed through it in a much better way. Now, I've told you over and over, we'll review just a bit, first two chapters of Galatians, Paul lays out, here I'm going to define the gospel, I'm going to tell you what it is, that God is holy, that you are not, that Jesus saves, and Christ can become your life. And then in the middle two chapters, chapters three and four, he defends the gospel against objections and says, hey, here's, no, this really is the truth, that God is holy, you are not, Jesus saves, and Christ can be your life. And then in chapters five and six, he says, here's how we're going to live out the gospel, in essence, the rumble that he's preparing you for is once you get your mind wrapped around what the gospel is and attempt to live it out, there's going to be a rumble in the jungle of your soul. It's going to be difficult. So you got to prepare yourself for that. And most specifically, we saw last week, Paul said that the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so it basically what Paul is saying is, hey, when you get serious about loving people and you bring the mess of your life close to the mess of somebody else's life and you get past mere pleasantries and the yard sign that says, just be kind, and you actually dig in and try to do life together and care for one another while you're being wronged and recognizing the selfish motives inside of your heart, this is going to be really hard. And so let's prepare ourselves. Let's get ready to rumble, is what Paul's saying. He said that the gospel frees us to love one another. It's both urgent and important, we said last week. And this week, you could summarize the passage in a single sentence as this, saying, the only way to truly love one another is to walk by the Spirit. There's no other way. Now, boxers might prepare and study what the other guy's going to do, and they've got all these training techniques they're going to do. But the only way for you to win this battle, to walk by the Spirit, is to walk by the Spirit, rather. The only way to truly love one another is to walk by the Spirit, to tap into a power source that's greater than yourself. That's what Paul's going to say here. And so we'll lay out the outline in three basic points. Paul will show us the plans for the battle. We've got to get that up front. What's the plan here? And then he's going to draw up specifically the lines of battle. Here are the battle lines. 
And then lastly, we'll see, here's the effect of the battle. When I fight this battle, here's the effect that's going to happen. All right, so the plans of battle, or plans for battle, the lines of battle, the effect of the battle. Start with the plans of battle. Look at uh, verses 16 through 18 in Galatians 5. We look back at God's word. Paul writes, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. What are the plans for battle, what does Paul say? He says, well, right off the bat, you're going to fight this battle by confidently walking. Right off the bat, what's he say? If you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. There's confidence that there will be a victory, and it's a steady walk. Daily, one foot in front of the other. It's not a race, it's not a sprint, it's a walk. The English here actually doesn't quite give sufficient strength to what the initial language was saying. It could also be translated as, as you walk by the Spirit, there's no way you'll fulfill the flesh's desire. It's like when you see a little kid learning to walk, and they're going, and they're going to stumble, but if dad is right there holding their hand, there's no way they're going to fall down. Right? That's kind of the imagery that's being used. And in a sense, Paul's saying, my dad is bigger and better than your dad. And as long as you'll stick close to him and walk by his spirit, there's no way you'll gratify the desires of the flesh. James 4, we just studied this in our Bible Institute. What's it say? Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. He's with you. There's confidence in walking, according to the spirit, that you will be victorious. Now, some of you, many of you, I know I think this when I read it, I think, man, that's, that's a great promise, but it doesn't necessarily correspond to the experience in my life. I feel like I'm not always as victorious as I ought to be. Amen? Oh, come on, guys. I know it's snowy out there. I know. <laughs> you don't have to say it again. I, that's where we're at, right? Like, okay, this doesn't always line up. So what Paul's going to move on to then say is, okay, recognize this battle is inside you, and it's going to rage, and we'll keep unpacking what that victory looks like. When Paul says the flesh versus the spirit, what he's not saying is that it's an external physical versus an internal spiritual. That's, that's not what he's, he's getting at. No, he's saying there's a, a, an aspect of your body, of yourself, that desires what God desires, and there's an aspect that that's the spirit, and there's an aspect of you that desires what you desire. I just want what I want, and I'm basically a selfish individual. That's the desires of the flesh. That's what's being outlined here. And so the, the last verse we read there, verse 18, we read, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. That's a critical verse to recognize because there's that if, if you are led by the Spirit. What's that imply? Some are not led by the Spirit. So at the outset of this battle plan, you've got to first recognize and answer, am I led by the Spirit? Am I truly a Christian? I may cognitively know that God is holy, morally perfect, completely set apart, no one like him, and that I am not. I've messed up, I've made mistakes, the Bible calls this sin, we've all done that. And that Jesus saves, he came and lived the perfect life that I didn't live, he died the gruesome death that I should have died because death is the consequence of sin. And Christ is then my life. You might know that or maybe you've heard that, but do you believe it? 
And friend, I'm here to tell you this morning, if you've heard that before, or maybe you've never heard it before, but you can know God. His son Jesus came and died so that you could be one of his children by faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ in his resurrection from the dead. That's the first part of this battle plan you've got to get right is, am I truly being led by the Spirit and therefore no longer under the law? I'm not under God's condemnation for how I didn't measure up but I'm looking at Christ's righteousness, his perfect life, that Jesus saved me, and therefore Christ is my life and that is my hope. That's the first major thing you've got to get there. Paul writes about this ongoing battle then in Romans 7. You can see it up on the screen, the battle in the life of the Christian. He writes, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I mean, that sounds more like the battle I'm used to fighting. Man, who will deliver me from this wretched body of death? And in a sense, this battle, I think of a little bit like learning to ride a bike. Or some of your kids, how many had it, you or a kid was really eager and you just jumped on that sucker and you went right away? Is that any of you? Yeah, Pastor Eddie, that's not shocking. Um, <laughs> how many of you, were, you or your kids were a little more cautious? Yeah, and so, so in essence, think through the mind of a little child. What's happening here? You see going down the, the tilt of the driveway and think, man, if I fall off this dude, it is going to hurt. I'm going to skin my knee, and I don't know that I want to try. Let's keep the training wheels on. And you as the parent are thinking, there's so much joy in riding your bike, and you'll never experience that joy if you don't give it a shot and sometimes fall over and crash a little bit, but you've got to at least try, right? In essence, that's how this Christian life is. It's a battle, and, and Satan wants to show you the pain of failure instead of the joy of flying. Say, look, don't jump in. Don't give this a try. And Paul's saying, hey, you're never going to grow if you don't battle. Or positively stated, you will grow as you battle. Think of it in this way. Maybe think, it, think about someone that you need to be reconciled to. There's been a weeks, months, years, decades long rift between you. And when you think about trying to reconcile, man, you think about, man, this, this is going to be hard I, I've tried this before, and I know they're going to stiff arm me. They're going to make all kinds of nasty remarks. Maybe they've got some power over your life, and they can make things really difficult for you. Maybe you know that you've messed up, and you don't want to go through the pain of revisiting your former screw-ups. It's just too hard. Satan is showing you the pain of failure instead of the joy of reconciliation that can be yours in Christ. You could apply that to any number of sins, but this is the battle for the Christian life. Friends, we grow as we battle. You've got to jump on that bike and start riding down the driveway, and the Spirit of God, as you walk, with his help, will sustain you and will strengthen you and carry you. The other side of that is that if we don't ever enter into the battle, and we say, I don't need to be reconciled, for, for use that example for a second, inside of ourselves, we curl up and we become bitter and nasty, and mean, and it's a slow death inside of us. That's why John Owen, the Puritan, would famously say, be killing sin, or it will be killing you. 
There aren't training wheels available to you in this analogy. That's where it breaks down. The kid can stick with the training wheels and be okay. You don't get training wheels. You've got to put sin to death and you will grow as you battle. Paul's here laying out the battle plan for us. And, and maybe the most important thing about this battle plan that we need to recognize is it's not primarily a battle for our behavior. Let me say that again. It's not primarily a battle about our behavior. No, we're not talking behavior modification, but life transformation that Paul is after. In other words, you might say, Justin, of course I know I do bad things. You don't have to tell me that. I'm well aware of it. What I want to know is why do I keep doing the same stupid stuff knowing that I shouldn't do it and keep returning to it? That's what I want to know. Paul's focus then is on your desires. You hear that word repeated over and over and over in those first couple words? Desires of the flesh, desires of the spirit. Folks, I'm getting the desires right so that you don't gratify the wrong ones, Paul would say. In other words, don't spend your whole life going around destroying the fruit, but leaving the root of your sin. Because if all you do is have a, a garden overgrown by weeds, maybe you didn't garden for the year, and you just take a mower to that thing, and you mow it, and I think, oh good, we're in good shape now, all the weeds are gone. You've destroyed the fruit, you've left the root, and you won't make long-term progress. For those of you that are avid Excel users, it's like you get the wrong conclusion in this massive table and the sum comes out and it's not the right answer. It doesn't line up with what it's supposed to be. You could go in and manually type in the right answer. You could go in and get the right one, but you know that you haven't fixed the underlying issue with the equation and so it's just the same issue going to be happening over and over and over again. In other words, stop playing whack-a-mole with the sin in your life. Whap, 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 whap. You bop the thing you see at the moment, but what you really want to know is how do I unplug the dumb machine so these moles don't keep popping up at me? That's what Paul's getting at. And so you could spend your whole life running around saying, don't be angry, don't be anxious, don't get drunk, don't look at porn, don't do, don't do, don't do, don't do. And you're merely looking at behavior modification, not life transformation. Just so critical that we see this this way, that we teach our kids this way, that sin is not merely the bad things I do. I've got to go deeper than that. So, so what this might look like then is that I may have a desire for approval. That's not in and of itself a bad desire, but the flesh can latch onto that, and the desire of the flesh takes that desire for approval. And so when, when somebody that I want a relationship with, I want their approval, when they're not interested in me or more interested in others, then that manifests itself in perhaps despair. What's wrong with me? Why wouldn't anyone be my friend? Or anger. Why would they do that to me? And you can look around and say, don't despair, don't be angry and whap the fruit without going to the root of saying, I'm looking for approval in somebody on this earth that can never bring me the level of approval that I need and have in Christ. You've got to trace it back to the root. Maybe another example would be helpful. You've got a desire to be loved. We all have that desire, it's a good desire. But maybe that in that desire to be loved, somebody that is not your spouse requests a sexual favor from you. And if that desire to be loved by them has been grabbed by the desires of the flesh in your heart, then you'll either give in or you might just merely put them off and not have the courage to confront them the way you're supposed to and say, 
No, I'm not going there. Because, track back, that desire to be loved has gripped your heart more than the love of Christ that you already possess. Maybe, maybe it's a desire for control. We all want to be in control of things in various ways in our life. And so what will happen is things start to spiral. And there's a growing sense of anxiety in my life that's actually quite debilitating, that, ah, these things are going on, I can't control them, and I see the fruit of anxiety, and I have to track it back to, I'm actually not willing to pray in the Lord's prayers. We'll pray tonight in the prayer meeting. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your Father, you are all good, all wise, all trustworthy. I can offer my life to you and trust you with it, even though I'm not in control, and that is okay. So it's not behavior modification, it's life transformation. Paul's saying the game plan is you've gotta track it back to the desires and quit playing whack-a-mole with the sin in your life. So then when he says walk by the Spirit, what does that mean? Well, a simple prayer that you might want to pray to help you walk by the Spirit would look something like this. Say, Holy Spirit, help me to see the true root under my sin. Help me to see the true desire behind my sin. And help me to see how Jesus is truly better. I had to do that this morning, guys. We're sitting in the house. Kids got up earlier than I thought they would. I'm like, I'm getting twitchy. I'm getting angry. What's going on? They're not even doing anything wrong. I just, leave me alone. I want some quiet time here. It's like, well, this is timely. (laughs) Go back and try. Okay, no, the kids aren't doing anything wrong. Why is this in my heart? What's underneath it? Holy Spirit, help me to not live by the desires of the flesh and gratify them with angry words, but to be led by the Spirit and be patient, filled with love, joy, peace. We'll come to those things. This is the plan for battle that Paul lays out. There's a confident walking in victory. It's an internal battle, and we have to recognize I have to go past behavior modification to life transformation, see the fruit of sin in my life, and track it back to the root that is wrong. That's the plan that Paul lays out for us. That moves to the second point, the lines of battle being more clearly established. The lines of battle. Verses 19 through 23. Look back at your copy of the scriptures with me. Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 19. We read, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. In establishing the the lines of battle, Paul essentially says, hey, there's two teams. There's team flesh and team spirit. And I just read team flesh to you. And and what's important to see, these things are uh, not an exhaustive listing, but it's categories, right? It says, hey, Paul says, these works are evident, at the beginning, and then at the end, and things like these. Like, it's, it's clear to see what these are. And so he lists three sexual sins. Sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. The, the first term, sexual immorality, uh, is the Greek word porneia. It's where we get our word pornography from. It's sort of a junk drawer term for sexual sin. In essence, Paul says, hey, let me just give you the broad categories of sexual immorality, of impurity, sensuality, because as soon as I try to list out 47 specific sexual sins, the human heart is so perverse, they'll go find something not on the list, a 48th way of being perverted, and say, ha-ha, I can do that, you didn't rule it out. 
So he says, no, let's just, these are obvious what's going on here. And it's clear that God's design for sexuality is that sex is reserved within the covenant of marriage, and marriage is one man, one woman, for life. That's God's design, and it's clearly under attack in our world, both inside and outside the church. It's not hard to see that, right? Paul goes on to list two religious sins. He calls them idolatry and sorcery. In essence, a religious attempt to harness the divine for what I want. Now you think sorcery, you might think of like a, you know, an African witchcraft sort of thing. That, that word sorcery can also be translated witchcraft. But in the American church, there's all sorts of this underlying issue of harnessing the divine to get what I want. You could see extreme examples in the prosperity gospel that says God wants you healthy, God wants you wealthy, God wants you living your best life now. But there's also less extreme versions of it that are all over the place, and they're more subtle, but we need to pay attention to those as well, where you may come to church and hear a message that in essence puts you at the center and says, God is here to basically give you a little bit better life, a more satisfied life, a little bit more joy-filled life to make you a little bit, little bit better parent, a little bit better employee, a little bit wiser with your finances. And in essence, God is the gateway drug to give you a better life on this earth. And that, too, is merely harnessing the divine to get what I want. And so we need to look out for that. Paul then lists eight relational sins, and we'll come back to those in just a second. I'll zero in on those. And then he concludes the list with two substance abuse sins, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And again, it's pretty obvious. Yep, I see how that's works of the flesh, not works of the spirit. This is not good. These things need to be rejected. But what about those eight relational sins? Because if you're anything like me, I read the book of Galatians, in the first two chapters I'm tracking, the middle two, sometimes I get a little bit lost with all the Old Testament stuff. I don't know exactly what's going on. And I get to chapter five, I'm like, oh good, here's the, here's the clear part. Tell me what to do. And I think, in my mind, I zero in on, hey, there's the sexual immorality. I need to run from that. That's a really big deal. I need to make sure that I'm staying away from drunkenness. That's a really big deal. And I miss that the majority of the sins listed as the desires and works of the flesh are relational in nature. How is it that we do that? Comes back to maybe that old little silly adage, I don't cuss or chew, drink or chew, or go with girls that do. There's the sins that are the other that we like to categorize them and overlook the way we treat one another as one of the primary indicators of whether or not I'm truly a Christian. The New Living Translation, I think, is helpful in kind of seeing what these sins look like. It reads like this. Hostility leading to quarreling, jealousy leading to outbursts of anger, selfish ambition leading to dissension, and division that comes from envy. I wonder when you hear that, is that you? Does hostility and quarreling just always follow you around wherever you're at? Jealousy leading to outbursts of anger? Maybe you didn't identify it as jealousy. But man, I just keep having these angry outbursts. Man, don't just see the fruit. Track it back to the root. Selfish ambition leading to dissension. Is there always dissension just kind of swirling around you and your social media feed? 
their division that is just always where you're at. We have to take these things to heart. Clearly, Paul is making a big deal of these relational sins. There's more of them than all the others combined. And Old Testament scholar Craig Keener was looking at this. It was really fascinating. I saw it this week that the seven non-relational sins are all, at some point in the Old Testament, punishable by death. So it's as if Paul is writing to them and they're saying, look, I know that you're going to zero in on these other ones. You already believe these are a big deal. But how you treat one another, I'm elevating it and I'm reinforcing what I said in Galatians 5.14, that the whole law is fulfilled in one word, love your neighbor as yourself. It's hard for us to take these words to heart and see the urgency and the importance behind them that Paul gives them. Jared Wilson would help us in this way. Look what, look what Wilson says. He writes, what the Bible calls sin is a worldliness we excuse and even embrace in the name of standing up for the truth. Like the Israelites bowing down to the golden calf and ascribing it as worship of Yahweh, we bite and devour one another in the spirit of the enemy and ascribe it to the spirit of courage. Because it's not just the words we say, but it's how we say them. It's critical. And I'll tell you, I'm right at the, the top of the list of needing to grow in this area. It is easy for me to see, hey, we gotta go this way, do this thing, and not be careful with how I say these things. But Paul's saying it matters greatly. And maybe you hear that Wilson quote or others like it and you wonder, is this really what we should be talking about? Shouldn't we be more talking more about critical race theory or secularizing government that wants to shut down churches? Shouldn't we be talking about the LGBTQ agenda or Christian nationalism or immigration reform or the sanctity of life? These are all significant issues. There's no doubt about that. But the tendency is to think that loving one another is important, but not necessarily that urgent. And what we've got to do is allow the scriptures to define our urgency meter. Right? We've all got an internal urgency meter. Like, okay, this is important, but we can set it aside. And we actually need to do more than just allow the scriptures to do that. We need to invite the scriptures to define our urgency meter and humbly submit to them. We need to remember John 13 that Jesus says, by this all men will know that you are my disciples. How will the world know that you're a Christian? If you have love for one another. We need to remember his words, John 17. He prays, Father, I pray there would be unity in the body of Christ because by the unity in the body, that's how the unbelieving world will know that Jesus is truly the Son of God. Or we could just turn back a couple of verses where Paul says, hey, the whole of the law is this, love your neighbor as yourself. As Paul couldn't be more crystal clear, loving one another and failing to do that in these relational sins is exceedingly urgent. Affirming the doctrines of the gospel must create a gospel culture. And failing to radically love one another is a primary indicator that we've lost the gospel or not actually believed it. Paul couldn't be more clear on this. And I think the reason he keeps coming back to it is because relational sins come at us a bit like the attacks on Pearl Harbor 80 years ago. That we've got our eyes in Europe 
seeing what Hitler's doing, things that seem obvious, and we leave our flank exposed with our battleships out and all our aircraft on the island without any protection at all because we're looking in a different direction at the sins we prioritize as the bad ones, and we're getting torpedoed on the backside wondering why the Pacific fleet is being decimated and we can't move forward. Loving one another is critical for the mission of the church. Growing through relationships is far more than a banner we put up, but a recognition that this is God's plan for the gospel to go forward, that we be a compelling community, that the outside world looks in at and says, I don't know how this works, but I want to be part of it. Tell me about this Jesus that has changed your heart so that you can then treat others differently. Maybe a helpful action point would be this. I want you right now just to picture somebody that is really difficult for you to love. Picture somebody that's super annoying. They grind your gears all the time. You've got that person in your mind? Okay. I recognize you have four options. You can take your frustration to God. Say, God, I am not loving this person as I ought to. Please forgive me. Help me to walk by the Spirit and give me the strength to do that. You can take your frustration to them. You can say, let me tell you all the stupid things you've done that make it difficult for me to love you, and let me help you repent. (laughs) Don't do that. You can take your frustration to others. You can take them in the form of a prayer request. You can take your frustration to others in the form of a social media post, a text message. There's all kinds of ways we can do that. Or you can hold it in yourself and pretend that you've got the strength to overcome it and you can suppress it enough. You're strong enough. You've got enough white-knuckle strength that you can get past this thing. It's not gonna work. Guys, you've got to take your sin to God. As difficult as it may be, Father, I am not loving this person as I ought to. And whatever they have or haven't done, I recognize that the commands of Scripture don't say love one another as long as they're kind to you. And I need your strength and I need your grace because I am not measuring up. I'm not walking by the Spirit here. That may be your action point out of this sermon. Make it a daily breakfast prayer to pray for God's grace that you would love that particular individual in the ways you ought to. But what James also says in uh, James chapter five is that you'll find healing for your soul in confessing these sins to one another. It's where the real forgiveness you have in God, in Christ, comes out and manifests itself in that I don't have to pretend to have it all together. I don't have to pretend like I'm fully justified. I can confess that I'm not right And I need Christ's help by confessing that sin to a brother or sister in Christ. And so I want to encourage you to do that, to find one or two trusted brothers and sisters. You don't have to tell them anything the person did. You don't even have to tell them their name. Say, man, God has convicted me this morning. I am not loving others as I ought. And I need his grace. And when that person comes to you, let me me counsel you just a little bit. Remind them of the promises of the gospel. That where sin abound, grace abounded even more. That his mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. 
that your performance doesn't define you. It's the promises of God in Christ that define you. And he who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Friend, that's what you tell someone when they confess a sin to you. Encourage them in the gospel and then pray for them. That's what James 5 says. And confess your sins to one another that you may be healed and pray for each other. And you may pray for them, perhaps the lyrics of a song come to mind. Maybe uh, Be Thou My Vision comes to mind. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure, thou art. Maybe you pray that over somebody. God, I pray for Pastor Justin that he would not heed riches or man's empty praise, but that he would see you as the great inheritance, the high king now and always. Do you encourage someone of the gospel? You pray for them. And then you encourage them to walk by the Spirit. To confidently walk by the Spirit. And you just say, hey, how can I help you pursue reconciliation here? How can I help you love one another here? How can I help you be an agent of unity, not factions and divisions? It's a transforming power of the gospel that comes first into your heart, puts us into a local church where there are a people that are changed by the gospel and it goes out and it's really powerful. This is what the unbelieving world doesn't think can actually happen. And by the grace of God, it can. Paul goes on to continue reinforcing the importance. Here, look back at verse 21. The very end of the verse, he says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Pretty strong words, Paul. If you do these things, sexual sins, religious sins, relational sins, sins of substance abuse and excess, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. What's he saying there? The the ESV is maybe not the best translation. It says those who do such things, that little word D-O. More helpful translation is practice such things. That's what the, uh, the New King James, the New American Standard translate it as, those who do such things, those who are busy with these things. It is the habit of your life. Not that on occasion you sin, we all sin. Paul told us about that in Romans 7. I read that just a couple of minutes ago to help reinforce that. But the habit of my life is that I continually make a practice, a habit of sinning. It's an indicator that I'm not actually one of God's children. And while I might say with my mouth, God is holy, I am not, Jesus says Christ is my life, my life reveals that I'm not actually trusting in his finished work on the cross to save me from hell and bring me to his eternal home and glory. I don't want you just to take my word for what that little word is supposed to mean, though. You, you shouldn't do that. You should look back to the scriptures. Let's look over at 1 John 3. It should be on the screen. We see the same idea being communicated. John writes, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Do you see the same idea being communicated there? It's not that you can't ever mess up. We're going to mess up. But it's with God's seed, his spirit inside you. As I walk by the spirit, as James 4, I resist the devil, he will flee from me. I draw near to God, he'll draw near to me. I'm making progress. It's not that you must have perfection, it's the direction of your life. That's what Paul's saying. 
This is team flesh, per se, and we've spent a few minutes outlining that as Paul's drawing up the lines of battle. But after he talks about team flesh, he moves to team spirit, verses 22 and 23. Look back again at Galatians 5 with me. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Team spirit is comprised not of many fruits, but it's a singular term, the fruit of the Spirit. Now, in, in English, of course, fruit could be singular or plural, right? In the Greek, it's singular. There's one fruit. That is, you're led by the Spirit. You're filled with all of these things. You're moving towards all of these. And notice these are not primarily outward behaviors. As we talk about, don't play whack-a-mole and just see sin as the bad things I do, but get underneath it to the root, the fruit of the Spirit works inwardly and brings out joy in suffering instead of despair. It brings peace in hardship instead of anxiety. It brings patience in waiting instead of frustrated toe-tapping. It means you are filled with goodness and gentleness and faithfulness. I'm gentle in conflict instead of being quick-triggered. I remember the first time I ever shot a revolver. I was at the, the range with the instructor, and uh, this particular gun was a really heavy uh, trigger on it, and so I, I'm, I'm holding it, and I've, I've not shot this thing before, so my hands are kind of shaking, and I'm trying to pull the trigger hard enough, and the thing, I just can't get the gun to shoot. And so he says, hey, do this. So he sets it down, and he, he takes the hammer, he cocks it, and says, try it now. And I hold it up, and the hammer is cocked, and when that's the case, if you've shot a revolver, you know this, it doesn't take very much. You just touch that trigger, bam, hits the target, I wonder if that's not you in conflict. Is your hammer already cocked, and it just takes the slightest thing to tap that trigger, and you fire? Or are you like the heavy pull trigger, that you can be squeezed on both sides, starting to wobble, starting to shake a little bit, but it's a heavy trigger. I'm gentle in conflict, and this gun is not going to shoot. This is the work of the Spirit in our life. And most of all, the last thing Paul lists is self-control. Because we're talking about the desires of the Spirit, the desires of the flesh. Don't gratify the desires of the flesh. There will be points when the desire of the flesh will rise up and Paul's saying, don't gratify it. And you've got to work hard at self-control. Strengthen your weak knees and develop some inner spiritual strength to fight against this, to say, I'm going to make daily, non-emotional right decisions, because I know my emotions might lie to me, and I'm going to be grounded in God's word and his strength to develop self-control to do what's right, even when I don't feel like it. Here's the thing, though. You, you don't have to be a Christian to recognize these are good things to have, but you do have to be a Christian, being led by the Spirit of God to see the transformation in your life. I heard it described this way one time. It's like you go to an apple orchard at the end of apple season, and almost all the apples are gone. There's certainly none on the ground. The only ones there are the rotted ones. There's none on the lower levels of the tree. There's only ones at the very top. And so you're with somebody who's the apple picker, and you're carrying the bucket, and they get up on their ladder, and they, they climb up to the top, and they're picking apples off the top, and you're beneath holding the bucket. 
And it's like the Holy Spirit is on the ladder bringing the fruit, dropping it into your bucket. And you've got to be there, available, walking in step with the Spirit, holding out your bucket, saying, Holy Spirit, fill me with the fruit. It takes you being present and active and working at it, but it's not ultimately your work. It's the Spirit producing it in you. These are the battle lines then being drawn up between the works of the flesh, the works of the Spirit. We've seen the plan for battle, and then the lines of the battle being drawn up. Lastly, we come to the effect of the battle, verses 24 through 26. We read, And those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. What are the effects of the battle? That as I fight this battle, this rumble in the jungle of my heart, to love one another as I love myself, I recognize my neediness of the Holy Spirit to transform me. The more I fight, the more I realize I need his help. Right? So when I begin to succeed a little bit, I recognize, oh my word, I don't know how that happened because that wasn't natural for me. I, I normally would have been angry, but the Spirit was working in me, and the more I fight, the more I recognize my dependence. The dependent life is the Christian life, is what you recognize as you fight the battle. That's the effect of the battle. But the other effect of the battle is that as I'm striving for holiness, to walk by the Spirit, there will be times I fail, and I recognize in that moment as well that I'm walking with confidence in his power, that if I will resist the devil, he will flee. If I will draw near to God, he will draw near to me. And the more I fight, whether I do well or I don't, I recognize that I must keep in step with the Spirit because there is no other way. I grow in my recognition of my dependency, and it doesn't matter if I'm doing well or doing not well. And at the very end, the last verse there, Paul points out, he says, hey, remember that stealth attack I mentioned, the thing you're most likely to overlook, the attack on Pearl Harbor where you're looking the other way? Let me come back to that and just remind you of the centrality of loving one another. Don't become conceited thinking that you've got this thing nailed or provoking one another because you see others being knuckleheads or envying one another because somebody's making more progress in their walk than you are. Don't be filled with those love one another. Paul says those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's the ultimate effect of the battle that we're looking for. That you crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. So you say there's a need for praise, there's a desire for praise. I've crucified seeking that on this earth because I have Christ and I don't need your praise. There's a desire for approval. You say I can crucify my need for your approval because I have Christ's approval. I could crucify my need for your love because I have Christ's love. Tim Keller would say it this way, to crucify the sinful nature is to say, Lord, my heart thinks that I must have this thing, otherwise I have no value. It is a pseudo-savior. But to think and feel and live like this is to forget what I mean to you, how you see me in Christ. And by your spirit, I will reflect on your love for me in him until this thing loses its attractive power over my soul. 
That's what it means to walk by the Spirit. To recognize, yes, I see the fruit of sin in my life, but I'm going to come back to the root. What's the thing underneath it that I'm wanting and loving in a way that I shouldn't? To recognize that I have that praise, approval, love in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to reflect on his love until this other thing loses its gripping power over my life. I wonder this morning, I wonder if you wouldn't just pause and consider for a second, what are the pseudo-saviors that you cling to? The things that you think you must have? Is it the approval of a family member and you're coming up on Thanksgiving and you just can't stop the twitching in your brain without wondering how am I going to get that family member's approval? Is it being on the right side of a political dispute if I have to be right on this? Is it a level of financial security? I have to have this thing, and if I don't, my life's going to fall apart. Is it a romantic relationship? Is it obedient kids? Friend, whatever it is, whatever it is, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace.